Hello, and welcome to Center Stage, a podcast for those interested in how the mind of an artist works. We sit down with actors, directors, writers, and artists of all kind to figure out just what gets their creative juices flowing. I'm your host and producer, Sergio de la On today's episode, we're joined by designer Court Rogers. Court and I met at the University of Florida and were lucky enough to get to work together on multiple shows during our time together. Without further ado, let's get into the interview. Joining me now is Court Rogers. Court and I went to the University of Florida together. We were both there through 2014 to 2018, I believe. Uh, and Court was one of the designers in the theater school. And now she is at UT Austin getting her MFA in theater with a concentration in live design and a specialization in costume design. I said that right, correct? Yes, you did. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Uh, Court is an artist. Uh, she was the, I'm going to say it, you won't say it. She was the best costume designer that we oh. had at UF during my time there. She won't say that because she's a very humble person, but I will definitely give her her flowers. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Court. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Sergio. Of course. Uh, I start all the interviews with one very simple but complex question, and it is, what does art mean to you? Ooh, big question. Um, <laughs> I I am an artist, so therefore I, I verb art, I think. Got it. To art? To art. <laughs> art is an expression. Art is an expression in a tangible or ethereal or imaginative way. I think it's a lens that we can view other things and events and people through to help us process our own emotions in a lot of ways. I don't think it matters what medium it is, visual or experimental storytelling or an audiobook or anything like that. I think I think it is a way for us to help process how we live, how we exist in a world. Do you feel like as humans we need those kind of coping mechanisms because that's what you seems to me that you're describing just art is one great coping mechanism that we can relate to. Do you think we as humans Absolutely. need that? Absolutely. I think I think if you want to look at like the caves at Lascaux, uh, Lascaux, Lascaux, um, Lascaux, I believe. Okay. Uh, even then, like even if it wasn't like they were doing depictions of of simple things, of things that were important to them in rudimentary ways, like animals. And the thing that was the most beautiful, though, is the just wall of hands that exists there. And I think that supersedes any visual treatment more so than just a way to interact as a community. So I think, yeah, I think it goes back way further than a lot of people realize. Yeah, of course. So I've had Zach and Tyler on the show, and Zach is an actor, Tyler's a playwright, and their mediums are very much, you have to make time and carve time out in order to experience that medium of art. Mm -hmm. You are a designer. You work with your hands. You do some stuff graphically that I, you know, I've seen on Twitter and, and your digital work, but you also are able to put you know, good old fashioned pen to paper, pencil to paper, and create something that people can view whenever they really feel. How do you feel your medium of art as, you know, the traditional quote unquote art that we teach in schools and stuff? How do you feel like your medium of art is able to relate to people how you described in your first answer? 
I think it's interesting. I think for myself as a visual artist, because I, I have two sort of modalities. I have designer brain, which is collaborative art brain. And then I have illustrator brain, which is I'm in charge of all of it. It's a single image or like whenever I do poster design for shows or things like that. It's a modality of like it is visual. And so there is a sense of visual language that happens that is different from how words function or how actors in a space embody a thing. It, it exists on its own in a way that traditional performative mediums don't allow. And I think it's interesting in the fact that like, I don't think too much about the fact that somebody could be looking at it at 5am or you know, 8.30 in the afternoon or one in the morning. I don't think that matters, mostly because I think art exists outside of the person who makes it. I don't matter anymore once I've made a thing. It doesn't belong to me. I mean, like, it literally belongs to me in the sense <laughs> of, like, please don't steal it. But, like, yeah. I, please, please pay Court Rogers. <laughs> yeah. Um, please pay me money. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but, like, is, as far as, like, experiential art goes, that experience is no longer mine. I've synthesized it and I've made it, but your own life experiences get interpreted on top of it. And that's what makes it interesting and different and why certain visual arts resonate with people in different ways. I have a painter who's one of my personal favorites who most people probably don't care about. It just doesn't ring with them the same way it rings with me. And that's because I have my own set of experiences that I layer on top of it. So when you create something that's just from you, we'll talk about commissions in a second, but when you create something that just comes from you, is there part of you that hopes that people can relate to it? Or if no one could relate to it ever, you would still be perfectly okay with that piece of art? I have done both, and I think they come out in different ways. There are some things that I do that I want to express an emotion, and I hope it's a universal enough emotion that some people will latch on to it. I've also made art that was entirely for myself. I didn't plan on sharing it with people, um, except for maybe a few close friends. And then somebody was like, no, I think people would want to see this. And that was actually some of the art that has impacted people the most in very different ways uh for context it's weird talking about art on a podcast but i <laughs> yes a visual podcast yeah a, a visual, visual medium <laughs> a visual medium on a podcast uh i made a series of portraits of a couple like people and uh, a single person all with different sort of animal skulls replacing where a human head would go okay uh they were graphite drawings and i made them when i was going through a weird bad breakup and other traumatic events like my job burnt down and stuff like that. I'm so and sorry. yeah, it, you know what happens. And that was how I I just sort of processed my own emotions in that way. And for whatever reason, me going through the motion of physically processing something actually helped other people see that more. That you, you feel like people have you created something just for yourself, but because there was so much truth in that creation, other people could find their own truth. In your creation. Yes. Am I synthesizing that right? Yeah. And and here's the thing. Nobody's truth is going to be mine. I right. They weren't dating that person and their job didn't catch on fire. But <laughs> I, I hope that they got something else interesting out of it. So let's, let's talk about commissions. Because for those that are unaware, commissions are when you hire an artist in order for them to create their project. So for example, on this podcast, if I was to say, hey, Court, I am doing a project that I need three or four different visuals for. I would hire Court and she would then, I would tell her what I want and then she would create something with her artistic touch. 
when you are approaching a commission, what is your process? Because it's one of those things where you don't just kind of have the inspiration come out of nowhere. It's someone needs a product and you are there to deliver the product. So what's your, what's your creative process when you're coming up with something that some that you're making for someone with specific uh, specifications? Uh, those are actually a lot of my favorites. I don't make a whole lot of art just out of the ether. Okay. I, I do a lot of directed project kind of work, which is why I think I've stuck in theater as long as I have. Okay. I typically like to have a conversation um, either in person or as in person as it can be these days and ask sort of what are your goals? Do you want something that is like eye-catching or something that is subtle? I ask for words like that are adjectives that aren't like as literal as people think. Okay effervescent, crumbly, saturate, that give me more of an emotional idea. And then that way I can extrapolate and interpolate those items so that it also combines my own artistic touch. I think that's what separates illustrators from graphic designers a little bit more for the sense that like I have training and practice with drawing and painting in a way that a lot of graphic designers do not. And so because they have hired me and not just a straight up graphic designer, they also know that they are going to be getting things that have more of an illustrator's hand to them. So so what then what are the benefits of hiring someone like like you that has a background in illustration and isn't just someone who picked up a computer software and learned how to use it really well? I know I just oversimplified graphic design and I did not mean to do that, but you know, what what is that what are the benefits of that? What are the benefits of you hiring someone like you rather than just someone who can graphic design, you know? Yeah, I think there are, I think it is more of an aesthetic choice. And I also think it depends on the illustrator you are hiring. People specialize in different things. I have a tendency to draw very beautiful women. And so if you are looking for somebody to do a project with illustrations of beautiful women, yes, I've done pinup calendars. Yes, they're a lot of fun. <laughs> I I think having a, a modality or like I use a lot of really bright and bold colors in my work a lot of the time. I think the, I think it's just an aesthetic choice. One is a little more homespun and the other is clean and polished. They both exist for different reasons. So then let's go back then. How did, how did you start drawing in the first place? How did you develop your aesthetic? How you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love this question. Uh, so my mom actually is an art teacher. Oh, wonderful. She taught middle school for many, many years. She just moved up to high school art. And I actually never really took lessons and I really didn't want her to teach me. <laughs> I wanted her to just put my drawings up on the fridge and say, good job. <laughs> uh, but it did mean that I got access to a lot of materials and got to try a bunch of stuff and say, oh, if I want to try oil pastels this week, she could bring some home. And it wasn't like a huge investment on materials or money or time. A lot of the time it was... She also had an idea for like what products were good when I started getting into things like color pencil and marker and ink when I was older. And she was like, okay, if you're really serious about inks, then we're going to get you the nice inks. And that was a game changer. I, I think she was one of my bigger inspirations there. And then I just kept drawing. I was a very shy child. And so it was a lot easier to either have a book or a sketch pad with me than interact with people. <laughs> um, and I also just like to... I think part of it is also, I feel like I'm still a very sincere fan artist as an adult. Um, and I think part of it was like, I just loved uh, different animated movies and cartoons when I was a kid. And I just wanted to draw like those people did, which is, I certainly don't want to be an animator as an adult. God, it's so much work. <laughs> but I, um, 
I found a lot of inspiration in movies like Fantasia and The Prince of Egypt and I'm trying to remember The Little Mermaid I had on VHS and I wore that tape out. It was just beautiful. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think a lot of it is like me just wanting to draw Ariel over and over again because I loved her so much. So so you mentioned Fantasia, Prince of Egypt, The Little Mermaid. Those are all Those are all musicals. Those are yes. all shows that incorporate music very well. Prince of Egypt and Little Mermaid in the more traditional musical style. Mm-hmm. but Fantasia as well. Is that maybe a reason why when you went to Florida, you decided to go costume design rather than just straight up learning how to, quote unquote, learning how to draw, even though it's a very individual artistic medium? Is that a reason why you gravitated a bit towards the theater? I think so. I'm also like, I love musicals. Um, I fell in We've love had with this them. conversation once in the hallway about yeah. how much musicals are high quality art. And they're in all so its good. Yeah. Um, there's just something that is so oddly sincere about the ability to break out into song in front of people. And I fell in love with musicals. I was, I don't know, 13 and I was watching Cats, the (laughs) the one from the 80s, not the god awful 2019 (laughs) version. And this is a cat slander podcast. Um, Uh, Listen, you don't have to tell me. (laughs) Ask Tyler. I slander cats a lot. It's (laughs) that wasn't good. But I, I watched Cats, the, the film version from the 80s with my great auntie, and I fell in love with musicals, like stage musicals. And I think there is just something that is so oddly sincere. And yeah, I think a lot of it does come into play with the fact that I love musicals and I love narrative storytelling. Even if I was doing a more traditional visual art medium, I, I've worked on a comic before, I've worked on several, and it's more straight up just visual narrative than uh, collaborative art, such as traditional theater or filmmaking is. But it's still narrative storytelling, like it's still sequential narrative storytelling. And I think that's what's the most interesting thing to me about it. Also, if it's a good musical, it's a good musical. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's very difficult for a musical to be very successful that is bad. And so the ones that you end up watching because they're successful tend to be good musicals. I don't know, Jesus Christ Superstar would beg to differ, but whatever. <laughs> okay, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber is that one little... All this is of, an Andrew Lloyd Webber slander podcast. I, I would not be mad because it's all four or five different motifs, but that is a conversation for another podcast. Um, Look, you'll have a composer on. It'll be fine. Talk <laughs> it'll be, about it. yeah, he, he or she can slander it when they get on. Well, you talked about musicals and all that. And like as I said, you went to Florida and you co- designed costumes. We talked about how your approach to commissions. I want to know your approach when you're designing a musical. What's That seems like a large undertaking when every single visual piece of clothing that is on that stage comes from the mind of one person. I can think, for example, when we did, um, when we were at the University of Florida, and I don't know, you probably had a hand in this because the costume department kind of did a lot, but when we did uh, The Drowsy Chaperone, that was a show that had tons of different costumes and tons of different visuals, and each one of them had to be unique while also contributing to the theme of the story. What's your approach to coming up with an entire aesthetic specific to a show and designing each and every costume. Yeah. Uh, well, fun fact, I actually think that was the show we met through. I was your dresser. Did we um, met? Were you my Yeah. Because d- I, I wasn't sure if you were my dresser. I wasn't sure if you had then worked on Spring Awakening. It's a very hazy. I, did, I worked on most of the shows at yeah, UF. I did a lot of the musicals. Year, um, okay. Yeah, I was your dresser, specifically your dresser for okay. Drowsy Chaperone. That's right, and... because you and because because um, – Thomas and I were upstage right, 
Yep. We had to change in the sec. I remember now. Perfect. Yeah. Look at that. Um, how the memory jogs back. <laughs> uh, guys, treat your dressers well. Um, yes. They, yes. they worked very hard. They have strange hours and they see a lot of naked people. Give them a drink. They deserve it. Um, yeah. No, I love musicals specifically. And I think part of this is why I keep coming back to designing for musicals or designing for theater is it's allowed to be theatrical in a way that a lot of straight plays or movies are not it's allowed to have its own sort of visual language because the audience has already bought into people singing and dancing on stage. And so because of that, you're allowed a lot more freedom and flexibility with a more cultivated aesthetic. I love mood boards. I am a huge fan of Pinterest. I have hundreds of boards that are all dedicated to different shows or projects that I have worked on, uh, both in undergrad and graduate school and other official works that I have done for like produced companies. And they all have a process that I like to go through. And this, it changes from show to show based off of what it needs. But I like to look at more abstract ideas in art first and sort of narrow in. I start with big picture, like what colors am I drawn to? And some of these are informed decisions based off of like time period or location or uh, different sort of like cultural norms. I'm thinking specifically of like, I wouldn't give the same color palette to Sweeney Todd as I would to hair if that makes sense. Like if I'm starting from a color perspective, hair is much more like earth tones with pops of jewel and a bunch of like paisley and and things like that. And that's grounded in the aesthetic of the 60s and 70s, where Sweeney Todd is a lot of black and white. And that might be more based off of either the illustration style that the comics were done in or the ink, since it was printed in Penny Dreadfuls, or just the general dreariness of a murder musical. (laughs) And, Where and so, a barber slits people's throats. <laughs> you know, just a normal day. Yeah, casual. Um, and so they, I start with like color or I'll start with texture. A project I worked on really recently was very grounded in like textures of knits and embroidered things and silks. And it was all grounded in a sort of earthy color scheme. But the thing I wanted to focus on first was the abstract idea of textures present. Because working with textiles allows you to do that. And I think that's something that is so fascinating about textiles as a medium is that they have volume in a way that a lot of two-dimensional mediums that I work with for illustration do not. And getting to take advantage of that is very nice. So start with an abstract concept like that, and then I'll narrow in on research. If it's a historical musical, it takes place in any sort of period. Or uh, if it's like a modern show, then it'll be grounded in different sorts of like location if it takes if it's taking place here in the US or elsewhere and what the age and class and religion and jobs and family status and all of these other things like what's so wonderful about being able to be a costume designer is that I get to fall in love with all of the characters a little bit it really is a labor of love to try and get to know these people and get to imagine them as like a complete person and I know that I can never do all of that but there's something really enticing about it. Yeah, and so I'll start making like research boards and move boards for individual characters from our leading lady all the way down to chorus number chorus member number five. Yeah, so there'll be research that goes with that. And I love research boards. And if it's a musical, they're a lot of work. You're absolutely right. They are so much work, which is fine. Do you find that you work with maybe a, the set designer or maybe just the actors themselves in terms of coming up with one cohesive vision as to what that character or what the, in terms of the set designer, the scenery will be and how the costumes maybe complement the scenery or maybe how an actor can 
put on a costume and then feel a certain way. And maybe that, maybe that doesn't gel with what they have been working on in the rehearsal space. Or maybe, maybe you give them something that is a non-negotiable, like, Hey, this is in the show and they discover something else from the character. Do you work with other aspects or is it kind of, here's the costumes everyone else can kind of adapt around them. How much collaboration is there in that process? I think it depends per project. I think early on, so the timetables for design are different than when I'm interacting with actors typically. And the aesthetic sort of comes out with conversations with the director. The director is usually the kind of fearless leader in a lot of these situations. And a lot of us come to the table by us. I mean, the design, my design colleagues come to the table with our own sort of aesthetic and taste on things. And that's fine. And we will usually have our initial meetings with visuals with the director And the director will be able to look at those things and be like, here is what I am gravitating towards. And even with like a little bit of direction, we come back for rounds two and three of preliminary designs with a much more concrete aesthetic now that we have even just a modicum of direction. It's mostly just so that we're all kind of on the same page. I talk to the set designer a lot. I talk to the lighting designer a lot and uh, because we've. We've all seen that show where the leading lady comes out in a red dress and the couch is also red. And so she's sitting on the couch and she's a floating head. (laughs) Um, And we don't want that. No, we do not. So I have a lot of design uh, conversations with scenic designer. Also, like if it's a moment where a character walks in, she's the new girl in town and she's meant to like make a statement and the set is purple. I don't know why it would be, but the set is purple. I'm going to put that actress in yellow. And she's going to just be a fluorescent neon light. Look at me, stare at me. And and those are important conversations so that I can make informed decisions on what color theory thing I want to do with the rest of these characters. And sometimes it goes back and forth. If I have a really concrete idea on like, this number is red, everyone's in red. And the set designer is like, well, I was planning on having the set be orange, but maybe it could be black and they would pop more. I think those like those are a lot of the conversations we have early on. And then when I for the second part of that question, whenever I am in fittings with actors, sometimes it's a non-negotiable. I'm thinking specifically about period shows. You're getting a corset. We're not tight lacing. There's a big mis- misconception about tight lacing and things like that. It's more a structural garment so that the 85 pound dress that you need to wear can stay up. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So yes, you are wearing a corset. You don't need to lace it that tight. It's probably more comfortable than your bra is if we're being honest. (laughs) And it also helps your posture. It helps you stand up a different way that is a little more quote unquote period. Uh, We don't slouch much in corsets. Uh, We're not allowed to. No. That's why uh, there's corsets. (laughs) mm -hmm. Uh, And one of my favorite things to do actually, especially with younger men actors If they're playing somebody who's a little bit older or a little more polished, I will give them dress shoes to wear to rehearsal because men carry themselves differently in dress shoes. I don't know why. I'm not a psychologist, but I know that that works. Listen, neither do I, but I definitely carried myself a little bit differently with rehearsal shoes than I did with my sneakers that I showed up to rehearsal in. When you, when the design team and the directors, and we get to the first rehearsal, a lot of people don't know, but most of the work in terms of creating the show, the vision for the show has been done already. Yeah, that was done months before you guys got cast. Exactly. So how many revisions do you have from that process? Because like I said, when I when I walked into as an actor, when I used to walk into a rehearsal day one, it was three or four weeks and then you do the performance, but most of the stuff is already done. How many mm-hmm. drafts, I should say, 
do you end up having before you guys decide, okay, this is the vision, everything's coming together, and the director says, perfect, let's bring in the actors and start working? I think it's definitely a little more pick up and start at the beginning of the process when we're going through preliminary design phase, which is broad scope visual. Let's say we're doing a Shakespeare show because people love to reimagine those. If we're doing, I want to make some snide comment, I'm not going to. If we're doing (laughs) Hamlet and is set in, give me a location. Uh, It's set in Greenwich Village. It's set in Greenwich Village. and And it's the year 1835. And it's 1835 in Greenwich well, Village. No, no, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. 1950. Greenwich it's 1950 Village. in Greenwich Village, and so I do a lot of research on Greenwich Village uh, in 1950. And I think in that moment, when all the research is presented to the director and the producers, if they're involved in that sort of conversation, we then decide, okay, this is actually the direction we're going, or no, this maybe wasn't what I had in mind. Let's rethink. Those big shifts happen really early. And then once we have decided, yes, it is Greenwich Village, 1950, uh, I then go into research and I do a lot of visual boards for different specific characters, Uh, lots of textiles, I'll bring swatches of fabric, and I will do some rough sketch renderings. Those typically aren't colored, they, or if they are, it's like really big strokes of color. It's, and I also do most of my renderings digitally, which helps A, with speed, and B, with uh, flexibility. I spend a lot of time on my renderings, mostly just because that's part of my visual language as an artist. And I kind of pride myself just a little bit on my ability to render people. I've spent a very long time uh, working on that, and it helps a lot when actors can see themselves in a drawing. And if the director is like, oh, I don't love this striped shirt. What if it was polka dots instead? And I'm also in agreement that like, maybe it could be polka dots. Because it's not just, a lot of people have a misconception that it's like, the director's word is law. It's not. (laughs) Uh, Some directors like to think that. I would like to tell them it's not. Um, I am just as much of an artist as they are, and I'm here to make informed decisions. And it's their job to also have the broad scope picture involved. But if we're both in agreement saying maybe it's polka dots or maybe it's red, I can quickly drop in a different color and we can see how it now looks with the whole cast on the set in mind that digital aspect allows you to basically trial and error before you even start creating something yes and a lot of designers even when they're working traditionally with like watercolor or paint they can do that it just takes them a lot longer i don't know about you but i value my time and i'm not saying that digital art is easy by any means it's actually a lot harder to make it not look so cut and dry but once you have a, a flow with it and a handle with it it makes my life a lot easier I think it was just one of those things, but I also know plenty of uh, purists who do only watercolor and they can knock out 20 watercolor paintings in two hours. Right. It's personal preference at that point. And so that's when a fair amount of revisions happen. And then once we've gotten through there and through proposed budgeting, budgets will also make some decisions for you. If it's a realized show, I would love to hand build every single costume for every single actor. It's not always an option. And so then some decisions need to be made about if we can rent or borrow items that are similar, or if this item can be built built by our staff of wonderful costume technologists and drapers, or if we can dye this skirt that we already have in stock for it to be the right color or things like that. It's a lot of juggling to see how close I can get within the time and the money and the man hours that I have at my disposal. You uttered the phrase, I am an artist too. And I'm very curious because 
it's a very male dominated industry and it's a male dominated world. And I feel like our generation is part of the generation that's really trying to bring equality to almost everything that we do. Do you feel respected as a woman in this industry? And I'll stop there because however you want to interpret it, I feel like is up to you. Yeah. Um, so I'm lucky enough to know that uh, in the costume part of this industry anyway, it's mostly women. I'm not going to lie and also not say that like there's, I wanted to do a lot of scenic design things when I first showed up at UF and that's a very masculine space and I didn't feel the best there all the time and I didn't feel super safe all the time. I'll leave that open-ended there Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's a shame because I'm sure that there are, are plenty of other women as well who would love to be scenic designers or be stagehands or work in the scenic shop and Sometimes it's a matter of, I don't feel safe or comfortable doing this because of my present company. And that's hard. In the design room, I, I feel like I have, I feel respected almost entirely when I am in a room. Part of that is earning a director's trust. I think if there's any amount of disrespect that gets shown, it is almost entirely based on the fact that I haven't worked with this person before and they're just hesitant towards new people. Once I show them a couple renderings, I've almost entirely earned their trust. And most of the time, their respect. I don't know if that can be true, can be said to be true about a lot of the women in the industry. I have a lot of advantages when it comes to how articulate my rendering is and also how little I put up with. Yeah. Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Uh, we try not to, but I can bleep that one out for you. Don't okay, worry. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> so listeners, what you, what you just heard, that beep, there you go. Now you yeah. know what, yeah. It rhymes with hit and has an S in front of it. So there you go. No, I don't I don't put up with people's uh, bad behavior. I won't. I know that I'm good enough that I don't need to. Well good. I'm I'm glad because that's that's always been something that as a as a male in that used to be in the theater industry, um, that was always something that I was curious on because I, I understand that I have that privilege as of being a man and, and um, as much as I want for equality, um, and I feel like I, I am an advocate, I, I know that not everyone thinks that the way you and I do. So that's right. good to hear, Court. That's good to hear. I want to talk to you about what your favorite aspect of designing is, because you talked about coming up with renderings, you talked about you know digitizing a bunch of things, you talked about uh, going through the process of working with the specific actors or with the scene directors. What's your favorite? Like, what, what, do you, what part of the job do you wake up and go, oh, I get to do this today? I, I'm really partial to rendering mostly because it's one of my happy spots. I just love drawing. But I think the part that is really the sweetest is when I am in a fitting with an actor and I get to see them change into a whole other person. There's a moment when we're doing a mock-up or we're doing alterations on a costume and their posture changes and they hold themselves differently and you can see that like the final pieces of this character they have been working on and falling in love with as much as I have in a lot of ways is like that little missing piece about how I dress and how I hold myself in the world gets to come together. It's so good. Yeah, that. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Is there is there a favorite design that you've done for a show specifically? I've had processes I've really liked more than others. I've had uh, some that were just interesting. I like designing with dance a lot. You can have the same sort of theatrical vocabulary as musicals and then some, but there are other constraints in the fact that like 
the first thing that is apparent in dance is they need to be able to move they need the way that they need to. Yeah, there's a physical barrier there. Yeah, there is them. a there's a very physical barrier there. But I got to work on a modern dance with Agbadidi some years ago. Ag- we- Agbadidi, for those who don't know, is the University of Florida has a West African dance program within its dance uh, degree, and Agbadidi is the annual West African dance show. So the costumes and the music and the choreography are all pulled from West Africa. We have multiple teachers that come in every single year and are full-time residents there in Gainesville that work on that project. So just so our listeners are aware. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. And then that year, they actually had the Modern Company do dance alongside the West African Festival, but wasn't from the traditional Ghanaian dances that they usually do. This was the sort of supplemental modern program with it. And I got to do, oh God, how did Trent phrase it? It was an an ode to his love of the city of New Orleans. That sounds like Trent. (laughs) And that was just enough of an abstract for me. Like it was concrete and it was abstract. He was like, I want it to be celebratory. It's a block party. And so I got to have a lot of free range and it was really specific dynamic colors. It was like this bright teal and this bright red. And they were these beautiful circle skirt wrap dresses that I had the women in and they spun on stage. And I heard the whole audience. I don't know how many people could fit in that theater, but it was opening. So it was full. And I just heard everyone take a little bit of a breath in all at once. I don't know what the lighting designer did. She lit those costumes up just right. I got to experience people just having their breath taken away by something that I had done. Literally. Yeah. It was wild. <laughs> so I think that that lives up there in a, in a top, top space. There's, there's something about specific moments when you're in a theater, the lights are down, the only thing on is the stage lights, the costumes are coming out, people are moving, whether it's a dance performance, whether it's a musical, a concert, whatever. There's always something about a specific moment within a performance that just makes every single minute, second of hard work for the designer, for the performer, for the director, all of it worth it. And I feel like that is something that costumes are a, an integral part of the way that we as audience members consume that art. Because as you said, if I'm watching, if I'm watching a Tom Sawyer musical and Tom Sawyer comes out in a three-piece suit, that's not going to sell. Tom Sawyer needs to be in his playground type his costume. breeches his breeches yeah he's got to have his overalls that have might have a hole in them you know his, his blue jeans that are cut a little bit too short because he's taller now you know so there's that moment there and and, and my last question to you court and i want to thank you for coming on what is the most impactful piece of art that you have ever consumed and it can be whatever medium you want i got the chance to see a rothko painting in person Wow. And for those of you who don't know Rothko, he was a mid-century color theorist. If you look up any of his art, it's not going to read the same way that it does in person. They're enormous. I think this one was 10 feet tall and probably six or seven feet wide. And you're supposed to stand like three feet away from them. Your whole field of vision is taken up by this interesting navy and orange and white square thing. And I felt it had like a heartbeat. I don't know why, but in that moment, I was like, this thing is alive and it has its own experiences. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who have stood here and felt this or not felt this. And it's absorbed that. And it was heartbreaking in a lot of ways. How so? 
I felt very aware of my own very meager existence, standing in the shadow of a colossus. Yeah, that. If you ever get the chance to see a Rothko in person, do it. It's one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever seen. That was that was beautiful. And it was very, it makes you think, you know? Sometimes we, maybe to the, I don't want to say the uneducated, because that makes it seem like art has a certain classism to it. And I don't believe that. Art is for everyone, in my opinion. I feel like there's this idea of art that it has to be, you know, the impactful pieces are uplifting and they give you hope and they give you optimism. But sometimes they're they're just like that. They just give you a reality check that we are but mere pieces of matter on a floating rock in an endless galaxy, you know? Mm-hmm. And And that's also beautiful in its own way. And I'm very glad that you got to experience that. And I hope to experience that one day. Um, And I hope our listeners can also experience that one day. Court Rogers, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything that you would like to plug? Yeah, I am on most social media platforms. Specifically, though, Twitter, Instagram. I stream on Twitch occasionally. All of those are Court and Crafts, C-O-U-R-T-A-N-D-C-R-A-F-T-S, all one word. I have a website, courtrogers.design. I also have an Etsy store. I sell prints of frogs and other <laughs> fun, cute things. So, you know, go check me out there. Yeah. Currently, your Twitter name is Frogmom. So it's true. It's because I am. I am yeah. Queen of the Frogs. <laughs> queen of the Frogs, uh, Queen of Design, and Court. I hope that one day we can work again. Uh, all of those things will be in the show notes, listeners. So you can go ahead and click on those links so you can stay connected with Court and all that she does. Uh, Court Rogers, thanks again so very much. Hope to see you in person one day uh, once all this stuff passes. And I hope that we can work together again one day. Yay. Thanks so much, Serge. Special thanks to Court for coming on and talking about her experience as a designer. To see more from Court, make sure you follow her on Twitch, Instagram, Twitter, and Etsy. Her handle on all of those platforms is at Courts and Craft. That's at C-O-U-R-T. A-N-D-C-R-A-F-T-S, all lowercase, all one word. You can also check out her work on her website, www.courtrogers.design. All of those links will be in the show notes below. That's going to do it for this episode of Center Stage. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter, at Center Stage Pod, and on Instagram, at Center Stage underscore pod. Those links will also be in the show notes below. Keep an eye out for future episodes for more conversations with artists about their craft, what art means to them, and what makes them tick. I'll leave you with the words of William Shakespeare. Know thyself, and to thine own self be true. We'll see you next time.